Hello, I am Malcolm Shaw, the Sir Robert Jennings Professor of International Law at the University of Leicester, the UK, and a practicing barrister in London. Settling territorial disputes. Territorial disputes are international disputes, but have a particular resonance in view of the critical centrality of territory to both the creation and continuity of statehood. Territorial disputes often concern important economic resources, such as oil, minerals or water, while over and above all such factors, the political and psychological attachment to land, typical of all nations, ensures that any territorial issue between states will necessarily be high profile. In addition, the attribution of territory will determine such critical questions as nationality and the exercise of jurisdiction over legal and natural persons. Whether territorial disputes may be settled depends, of course, upon the attitude of the parties. The political situation may be such that settlement of a boundary conflict may not be possible at any given moment, so that the international task becomes that of containment and prevention of exacerbation or the ending of a state of hostilities, if that be the case. Or it may be that the parties have reached a point in their relations that they wish to settle the dispute, and all that remains is finding a way to do this that minimises any domestic political difficulties. Some states feel that they can win the particular argument, other that the dispute is disruptive of relations and needs to be resolved, whatever the result, in order to improve relations between those states. Settling territorial disputes has become a particular art in view of all the sensitivities inevitably involved. Territorial conflicts may be resolved by the mechanisms usually available for interstate dispute resolution, but often an approach that brings together a number of such methodologies is required. In fact, modern practice demonstrates the increasing involvement of third parties in an attempt to reach or sustain a territorial settlement. The resolution of territorial disputes depends, of course, upon the will to reach an agreement. Where this is absent, no agreement will be possible. But this will to end the dispute may derive from a variety of sources. It may be that the states concerned wish to resolve the dispute as a matter of good faith and in a straightforward manner by seeking to ensure its claims succeed. Or it may be that one of the states makes a calculation that good relations with its neighbour is more important than the dispute in question, but it simply cannot give way for political reasons, so a formal mechanism of conflict resolution is required. Or it may be that third parties, whether states or corporations, require that a particular dispute be settled before for example, they are willing to invest in the exploitation of resources and further assist in the resolution process by way of expertise or financial support. We will first survey the classic means in international law for resolving interstate disputes. The techniques of conflict management fall into two categories, diplomatic procedures and adjudication. The former involves an attempt to resolve differences, either by the contending parties themselves or with the aid of other entities, by the use of the discussion and fact-finding methods. Adjudication procedures involve the determination by a disinterested third party of the legal and factual issues involved, 
either by arbitration or by the decision of judicial organs. Of course, there is no legal obligation that states resolve their differences at all. And this applies in the case of serious legal conflicts as well as peripheral political disagreements. All the methods available to settle disputes are operative only upon the consent of the particular states and in general no special method of dispute resolution is required. What is required by Article 2.3 of the United Nations Charter is that all members shall settle their international disputes by peaceful means in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. The 1970 Declaration on Principles of International Law Concerning Friendly Relations develops this principle and notes that states shall accordingly seek early and just settlement of their international disputes by negotiation, inquiry, mediation, conciliation, arbitration, judicial settlement, resort to regional agencies or arrangements, or other peaceful means of their choice. There would appear, therefore, to be no inherent hierarchy with respect to the methods specified and no specific method required in any given situation. States have a free choice as to the mechanisms involved for settling their dispute. This approach is also taken in a number of regional instruments, including the American Treaty on Pacific Settlement, the Pact of Bogota, 1948, of the Organization of American States, and the 1957 European Convention for the Peaceful Settlement of Disputes. Should the means elaborated fail to resolve a dispute, the continuance of which is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security, the parties under Article 37.1 of the Charter shall refer it to the Security Council. Of all the procedures used to resolve differences, the simplest and most utilised form is understandably negotiation. It consists basically of discussions between the interested parties with a view to reconciling divergent opinions or at least understanding the different positions maintained. It does not involve any third party, at least at that stage, and so differs from the other forms of dispute management. Negotiations are the most satisfactory means to resolve disputes since the parties are so directly engaged. Negotiations, of course, do not always succeed, since they do depend on a certain degree of mutual goodwill, flexibility and sensitivity. Hostile public opinion in one state may prevent the concession of certain points, and mutual distrust may fatally complicate the process, while opposing political attitudes may be such as to preclude any acceptable negotiated agreement. In certain circumstances, there may exist a duty to enter into negotiations arising out of particular bilateral or multilateral agreements. One example being Article 283.1 of the Convention on the Law of the Sea. While some treaties may predicate resort to third-party mechanisms upon the failure of negotiations. Where there is an obligation to negotiate, this would imply an obligation to pursue such negotiations as far as possible with a view to concluding agreements. As the International Court of Justice 
emphasized in the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons case with regard to Article 6 of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. The employment of the procedures of good officers and mediation involves the use of a third party, whether an individual or individuals, a state or a group of states or an international organization, to encourage the contending parties to come to a settlement. Unlike the techniques of arbitration and adjudication, the process aims at persuading the parties to a dispute to reach satisfactory terms for its termination by themselves. Provisions for settling the dispute are not prescribed. Technically, good officers are involved where a third party attempts to influence the opposing sides to enter into negotiations, whereas mediation implies the active participation in the negotiating process of the third party itself. In fact, the dividing line between the two approaches is often difficult to maintain as they tend to merge into one another, depending on the circumstances. The UN Secretary General can sometimes play an important role by the exercise of his good officers. An example of this was provided in the situation relating to Afghanistan in 1988. Were differences of opinion on factual matters underlie a dispute between the parties, the logical solution is often to institute a commission of inquiry to be con conducted by reputable independent observers to ascertain precisely the facts in contention. However, the technique is limited in that it can only have relevance in the case of international disputes which centre around a genuine disagreement as to particular facts, which can be resolved by recourse to an impartial and conscientious investigation. The process of conciliation involves a third-party investigation of the basis of the dispute and the submission of a report embodying suggestions for a settlement. As such, it involves elements of both inquiry and mediation. And in fact, the process of conciliation emerged from treaties providing for permanent inquiry commissions. Conciliation reports are only proposals and as such do not constitute binding decisions. They are thus different from arbitration awards. In certain circumstances, conciliation processes do have a role to play. They are extremely flexible and by clarifying the facts and discussing proposals may stimulate negotiations between the parties. A number of multilateral treaties, indeed, do provide for conciliation as a means of resolving disputes, such as the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea and the 1985 Vienna Convention on the Protection of the Ozone Layer, as well as a number of regional peaceful settlement treaties. As far as regional arrangements or agencies dealing with matters concerning the maintenance of international peace and security, Article 52 2 of the UN Charter integrates them within the general UN framework, although the roles of the Security Council and General Assembly remain unaffected. In particular, Article 53.1 provides that while the Council may, where appropriate, utilise such regional arrangements or agencies for enforcement action under its authority, no enforcement action should be taken by regional arrangements or by regional agencies without the authorization 
of the Security Council. It should also be noted that by Article 24, the Security Council possesses primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security, while Article 103 of the Charter emphasises that in the event of a conflict between the obligations of a UN member under the Charter and obligations under any other international agreement, the former are to prevail. This is not a lecture on the machinery created by the various regional organisations, but we need to note in passing, and in the context of territorial disputes, the role of the African Union, formerly the Organisation of African Unity. In the Algerian-Morocco boundary dispute, for example, the OAU established an ad hoc commission consisting of the representatives of seven African states to seek to achieve a settlement of issues arising out of the 1963 clashes. Similarly, in the earlier Somali-Ethiopian conflict, a commission was set up by the OAU in an attempt to mediate. This commission failed to resolve the dispute, although it did reaffirm the principle of the inviolability of frontiers of member states as attained at the time of independence. In the third case, the Western Sahara dispute, an OAU committee was established in July 1978, which sought unsuccessfully to reach a settlement in the conflict. While the OAU also established committees to try to mediate in the Chad civil war. Despite mixed success, it became fairly established practice that in a dispute involving African states, initial recourse will be made to OAU mechanisms primarily ad hoc commissions or committees. We will note later some further examples of the involvement of the AU, which succeeded the OAU. Article 23 of the Charter of the Organization of American States, signed at Bogota in 1948 as amended, provides that international disputes between member states must be submitted to the OAS for peaceful settlement, and the 1948 American Treaty of Pacific Settlement sets out the procedures in de detail ranging from good officers, mediation and conciliation, to arbitration and judicial settlement by the International Court of Justice. This treaty, however, has not been successful, and in practice the OAS has utilised the Inter-American Peace Committee created in 1940 for peaceful resolution of disputes. This was replaced in 1970 by the Inter-American Committee on Peaceful Settlement, a subsidiary organ of the Council. Since the late 1950s, the Permanent Council of the OAS, a plenary body at ambassadorial level, has played an increasingly important role. One example concerned the frontier incidents that took place on the border between Costa Rica and Nicaragua in 1985. The Council set up a fact-finding committee and after hearing its report, adopted a resolution calling for talks to take place within the Contador negotiating process. The Esquipolis II Agreement of 14th of November 1987 established an international verification and follow-up commission to be composed of the foreign ministers of the Contadora and support group states together with the Secretaries General of the UN and the OAS. Within the NATO alliance, there exist good officers facilities 
and inquiry, mediation, conciliation and arbitration procedures may be instituted. In fact, the organisation proved of some use, for instance in the long-standing Cod War between Britain, Britain and Iceland, two NATO partners. The Organisation on Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, has gradually been establishing dispute resolution mechanisms. Under the key documents of this organisation, the participating states are to endeavour in good faith to reach a rapid and equitable solution of their disputes by using a variety of means. In addition, the OSCE is able to send missions to various participating states, with their consent, as part of its early warning conflict prevention and crisis management responsibilities. Such missions have been sent to Yugoslavia, as it was, to promote dialogue between the populations of Kosovo, Sanyak and Vojvodina, and the authorities of the state, to the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, to Georgia, Moldova, Tajikistan, Estonia, Ukraine and Chechnya. Additional missions have operated in Albania and Kosovo, Moldova and Georgia. Success has not always been widespread. As has been seen, there is a considerable variety of means, mechanisms and institutions established to resolve disputes in the field of international law. However, a special place is accorded to the creation of judicial bodies. Such courts and tribunals may be purely interstate or may permit individuals to appear as applicants or respondents. They may be permanent or temporary, being established to resolve one particular dispute. In resolving disputes, a variety of techniques is likely to be used and references to judicial bodies should be seen as part of a larger process of peaceful settlement. The procedure of arbitration grew to some extent out of the processes of diplomatic settlement and represented an advance towards a developed international legal system. In its modern form, it emerged with the Jay Treaty of 1794 between Britain and America, which provided for the establishment of mixed commissions to solve legal disputes between the parties. The procedure was successfully used in the Alabama Claims Arbitration of 1872, which resulted in the UK having to pay compensation for the damage caused by a Confederate warship built in the UK during the U US Civil War. This success stimulated further arbitrations, for example the Bering Sea and the British Guiana and Venezuela boundary arbitrations at the close of the 19th century. The 1899 Hague Convention for the Pacific Settlement of Disputes included a number of provisions on international arbitration, the object of which was deemed to be, under Article 15, the settlement of differences between states by judges of their own choice and on the basis of respect for law. This became the accepted definition of arbitration in international law. It is repeated in Article 37 of the 1907 Hague Conventions and adopted by the Permanent Court of International Justice, the precursor to the current International Court of Justice. In addition, a Permanent Court of Arbitration was established, which is in essence machinery facilitating the establishment of arbitral tribunals. The PCA consists of an international bureau, which acts as the registry of the court, and keeps its records, 
and a permanent administrative council exercising administrative control over the Bureau. The PCA has been used in a variety of cases from an early date and more recently the PCA has started to play an increasingly important role. So much so that an element of institutionalisation of arbitration has been detected by some writers. It has served as the registry in, for example, the two phases of the Eritrea-Yemen arbitration and for the Eritrea-Ethiopia Boundary Commission and Claims Commission and in the Larson v Hawaiian Kingdom arbitration. It also provided facilities in cases such as the MOX arbitration between the UK and Ireland and has even become involved in domestic boundary issues in the Sudan case upon the request of the parties. Arbitration tribunals may be composed in different ways. Under the PCA system, and in the absence of agreement to the contrary, each party selects two arbitrators from the panel, only one of whom may be a national of the state. These arbitrators then choose an umpire or neutral chairman or woman. But if they fail to do so, this task will be left to a third party nominated by agreement. States are not obliged to submit a dispute to the procedure of arbitration in the absence of their consent. This consent may be expressed in arbitration treaties in which the contracting states agree to submit certain kinds of disputes that may arise between them to arbitration, or in specific provisions of general treaties which provide for disputes with regard to the treaty itself to be submitted to arbitration. Although the number of treaties dealing primarily with the peaceful settlement of disputes has declined since 1945. Consent to the reference of a dispute to arbitration with regard to matters that have already arisen is usually expressed by means of a compromise or special agreement and the terms in which it is couched are of extreme importance. This is because the jurisdiction of the tribunal is defined in relation to the provisions of the treaty or the compromise, whichever happens to be the relevant document in the particular case. However, in general, the tribunal may determine its competence in interpreting the compromise and other documents concerned in the case. The law to be applied in arbitration proceedings is international law, but the parties may agree upon certain principles to be taken into account by the tribunal and specify this in the compromise. In this case, the tribunal must apply the rules specified. For example, in the British Guyana and Venezuela boundary dispute, it was stated that occupation for 50 years should be accepted as constituting a prescriptive title to territory. Once an arbitral award has been made, it is final and binding upon the parties. But in certain circumstances, the award itself may be regarded as a nullity. There is disagreement amongst lawyers as to the grounds on which such a decision may be taken. However, it is generally accepted that where a tribunal exceeds its powers under the compromise, its award may be treated as a nullity, although this is not a common occurrence. Such excess of power, excès de pouvoir, may be involved where the tribunal decides a question not submitted to it or applies rules it is not authorised to apply. The main example of the former is the Northeast boundary case between Canada and the United States, 
where the arbitrator, after being asked to decide which of two lines constituted the frontier, in fact chose a third line. Arbitration as a method of settling disputes combines elements of both diplomatic and judicial procedures. It depends for its success on a certain amount of goodwill between the parties in drawing up the compromise and constituting the tribunal, as well as actually enforcing the awards subsequently made. A large part depends upon negotiating processes. In recent years, there has been a rise in the number of interstate arbitrations, not least in territorial and maritime disputes. The of Kutch case, the Anglo-French Continental Shelf case, the Beagle Channel case and the Tabber case were all the subject of arbitral awards, usually successfully. More recent examples include the Eritrea-Yemen arbitration, the Eritrea-Ethiopia boundary delimitation case and the Barbados v Trinidad and Tobago maritime delimitation case. It may be that further such issues may be resolved in this fashion, although a lot depends on the evaluation of the parties as to the most satisfactory method of dispute settlement in the light of their own particular interests and requirements. The alternative to arbitration in such cases is to go to the International Court of Justice, a standing court of 15 judges in The Hague representing the major legal systems of the world and constitutionally the principal judicial organ of the UN. It now has considerable expertise in addressing territorial issues. In many territorial disputes, the parties will individually and together need, it, need to consider whether to seek to resolve their problem before the ICJ or before an arbitral tribunal many factors will be considered. Arbitration is an extremely useful process where some technical expertise is required or where greater flexibility and speed than is available before the International Court is desired. The states themselves choose the arbitrators, lay down the applicable law and rules of procedure as well as set the timetable. In addition, the states involved may wish for the proceedings to be confidential something which is not achievable in the International Court with its publication of written proceedings and its public oral hearings. However, the parties pay all the costs of the arbitration, including the fees due to the registrar and arbitrators, while in the International Court, the judges and members of the registry are paid by the UN. It may, of course, be possible to request that a case be heard by a chamber of the ICJ, perhaps in an attempt to ensure that the judges hearing the case are particularly aware of regional issues. And the El Salvador-Honduras land and maritime boundary and the Niger-Benin cases were so heard. It, all in all, some careful thought will need to be given to the matter by the relevant states. A few words needs to be said about the centrality of the UN. In pursuance of its primary responsibility, the Security Council may, by Article 34, investigate any dispute or any situation which might lead to international friction or give rise to dispute in order to determine whether the continuance of the dispute or situation is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security. In addition to this power of investigation, the Security Council can where it deems necessary, 
call upon the parties to settle their dispute by the means elaborated in Article 33. The Council may intervene if it wishes at any stage of a dispute or situation, the continuance of which is likely to endanger international peace and security, and under Article 36.1, recommend appropriate procedures or methods of adjustment. But in making such recommendations which are not binding, it must take into consideration the general principle that legal disputes should be referred by the parties to the International Court of Justice. Where the parties to a dispute cannot resolve it by the various methods mentioned in Article 33, they should refer it to the Security Council by Article 37. The Council, where it is convinced that the continuance of the dispute is likely to endanger international peace and security, may recommend not only procedures and adjustment methods, but also such terms of settlement as it may consider appropriate. Once the Council, however, has determined the existence of a threat to or breach of the peace or an act of aggression, it may make decisions which are binding upon member states of the UN under Chapter 7. But until that point, it can, under Chapter 6, issue recommendations only. In practice, the Security Council has applied all the diplomatic techniques available in various international disputes. This is in addition to open debates and the behind-the-scenes discussions and lobbying that take place. On numerous occasions, it has called upon the parties to a dispute to negotiate a settlement and has requested that it be kept informed. The Council offered its good officers in the late 1940s with regard to the Dutch-Indonesian dispute and has re had recourse to mediation attempts in many other conflicts, for example with regard to the Kashmir and Cyprus questions. However, the cases where the Council has recommended procedures or methods of adjustment under Article 36 have been rather comparatively rare. Only in the Corfu Channel and the Aegean Sea disputes did the Council recommend the parties turn to the International Court. Probably the most famous Security Council resolution recommending a set of principles to be taken into account in resolving a particular dispute is Resolution 242 of 1967 dealing with the Middle East. This resolution pointed to two basic principles to be applied in establishing a just and lasting peace in the Middle East. First, Israeli withdrawal from territories occupied in the recent conflict, the 67 war, and secondly, the termination of all claims of belligerency and acknowledgement of the right of every state in the area to live in peace within secure and recognised frontiers. Various other points were referred to in Resolution 242, including the need to guarantee freedom of navigation through international waterways in the area, achieve a just settlement of the refugee problem, and reinforce the territorial inviolability of every state in the area through measures such as the use of demilitarised zones. I turn now to look briefly at three recent territorial disputes to see how the principles already noted have been used and with what degree of success. 
a good example of the use of a variety of methods in an integrated way is afforded by the successful settlement of the Chad-Libya boundary dispute. Following a long period of conflict and armed hostilities since the dispute erupted in 1973, the two states signed a framework agreement on the peaceful settlement of the territorial dispute on the 31st of August 1989, in which they undertook to seek a peaceful solution within one year. In the absence of a political settlement, the parties undertook to take the matter to the International Court. After inconclusive negotiations, the dispute was submitted to the International Court by, noti by notification of the framework agreement by the two parties to the court. The decision of the court was delivered on the 3rd of February 1994. The court accepted the argument of Chad that the boundary between the two states was defined by the 1955 Franco-Libyan Treaty. Following this decision, the two states concluded an agreement providing for Libyan withdrawal from the previously disputed Ozu Strip by the 30th of May 1994. The agreement provided for monitoring of this, with, this withdrawal by United Nations observers. The two parties also agreed to establish a joint team of experts to undertake the delimitation of the common frontier in accordance with the decision of the court. On the 4th of May 1994, the Security Council adopted Resolution 915 establishing the UN Ozu Strip Observer Group and authorising the deployment of observers and support staff for a period up to 40 days. On the 30th of May, Libya and Chad signed a joint declaration stating that the withdrawal of the Libyan administration and forces had been effected as of that date to the satisfaction of both parties as monitored by the UN Observer Group. The Security Council terminated the mandate of the Observer Group upon the successful conclusion of the mission in Resolution 926 on the 13th of June that year. Cameroon brought a case against Nigeria in 1994 concerning the Bakasi Peninsula, the Lake Chad region and several points along the land frontier. Maritime limits were also at issue. In order to preempt any implementation difficulties, the UN Secretary-General convened a meeting of the two presidents a month before the ICJ gave its decision. This was followed by another one a month after the 10th of October 2002 judgment of the court, at which the parties decided to set up a mixed commission in order to assist in the implementation of the judgment. Further tripartite summits were held in 2004 and 2005 in order to keep the process on track and prevent any breakdown of relations in the light of the terms of the judgment. The Mixed Commission met for several years with UN support and established a number of working groups. The Mixed Commission completed its work on the maritime boundary in 2008 and continued its work on the demarcation of the land boundary. A group of civilian international observers was created to assist in the process. Nigeria withdrew from the Lake Chad region and points along the land boundary as required by the judgment in 2003 and in 2004. 
On the 12th of June 2006, the parties reached a formal agreement, the so-called Green Tree Agreement, recognising the judgment of the court and providing for the handing over of the Bakasi Peninsula to Cameroon as required by the judgment, but also providing for the good treatment of Nigerian nationals in the transferred territory. The agreement provided for a two-stage transitional period during which the Bakasi Peninsula would have a special status. For the first non-renewable period of two years after the withdrawal of Nigerian forces, Cameroon would allow Nigeria to keep its civil administration and a police force necessary for the maintenance of law and order in the zone. At the end of this period, Nigeria would withdraw its administration and its police force and Cameroon would take over the administration of this zone, the Bakasi. This second period would last for five years during which, for example, Cameroon would facilitate the exercise of the rights of Nigerian nationals living in the zone and access by Nigerian civil authorities to the Nigerian population living in the zone. Importantly, a follow-up committee was established to monitor the agreement, consisting of the parties, the UN and the witness states, being the UK, the US, France and Germany. Nigeria withdrew its armed forces from Bakasi in August 2006 and the ceremony for the formal transfer of authority from Nigeria to Cameroon took place in August 2008. Following continual upheavals and changes of government in Ethiopia, Eritrea became independent on the 27th of April 1993. In May 1998, hostilities broke out between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Following the framework agreement and the modalities for its implementation of July 1999 and the agreement on cessation of hostilities of June 2000, both of which were endorsed by the Organization of African Unity, now the African Union, and the United Nations, the agreement of 12th of December 2000 was signed in Algiers by the two states, providing for the permanent termination of hostilities. As part of this December agreement, a neutral boundary commission was established. There were several critical points that distinguished the Commission from other boundary court or tribunal processes. First, the Commission was asked both to delimit and demarcate the boundary in question. Secondly, and unusually for a formal arbitration, the process was institutionally underpinned by benefiting from the overt support of the United Nations, the OAU stroke African Union, the European Union and the US who witnessed the agreement. Thirdly, the degree of post-delimitation award practice that has taken place has enabled a number of clarifications to be made and embedded the Commission in the process of implementation. This is unusual in that usually the court or tribunal producing a boundary decision ceases its involvement once the decision has been made. The advantage is that in an implementation process of some complexity and controversy, the parties are able to 
obtain authoritative guidance. The disadvantage is that it may place the awarding body in a rather vulnerable position as between the contending parties. The final decision on delimitation of the 13th of April 2002 was transmitted to the parties and to the Secretaries General of the OAU and the UN for publication and the UN was asked to facilitate resolution of problems which may arise due to the transfer of territorial control, including the consequences for individuals residing in previously disputed territory. In all, and in a case of unusual complexity, the President of the Commission issued 26 reports on the work of the Commission, while the Commission itself made a number of subsequent binding decisions, and the Security Council adopted a number of resolutions on the dispute. In particular, the subsequent practice of the Commission led to a number of important statements as to, for example, the delimitation decision, the scope and nature of demarcation, the question of interpretation, and the responsibility of the parties both generally and particularly with regard to the period between delimitation and demarcation. Ultimately, at its meeting in November 2006, the Commission, faced with the lack of necessary cooperation by the parties, extending over more than four years in its words, decided to act unilaterally with regard to the demarcation line, and the parties were provided with a list of boundary points identified by the Commission by means of modern techniques of image processing and terrain modelling in conjunction with aerial photography. The Commission proposed that the parties consider their positions and seek to reach agreement on the placement of pillars over a 12-month period terminating at the end of November 2007. If by that date the parties had not reached the necessary agreement and proceeded significantly to implement it, or had not requested and enabled the Commission to resume its activities, the Commission declared the band would automatically stand as demarcated by the points listed and the mandate of the Commission fulfilled. On the 30th of November 2007, the Commission issued a formal press statement, the effect of which was to mark the formal demarcation of the boundary in accordance with its decision of the year earlier. The following overall conclusions may be noted briefly. First, territorial issues by their very nature are highly sensitive and politically charged. This needs to be accepted and dealt with. Secondly, the traditional methods of interstate dispute resolution still apply. There has been no replacement of them and they should not and cannot be ignored. Thirdly, the invariable complexity and political delicacy of territorial disputes often requires support from third parties whether states or international or regional organisations, in order for an agreement to be reached and in order for an agreement to be sustained and rendered effective. Fourthly, however, ultimately the decision is one for the states concerned. If they are willing to settle their disputes and take whatever political risks there may be, then such disputes may be resolved. If not, then no amount of third-party pressure is likely to succeed, at least in the short term. 
The examples provided earlier, although only briefly and rather simply noted, demonstrate these points. The involvement of the UN as the ultimate neutral and international instrument of legitimation is often critical, but so is the active support of key third states, for only they can provide the logistical and financial muscle that may sometimes be required.